there's really some parables here about the growth of the kingdom. Uh, he's, he's talked about the parable of the tares, and we will deal with the fulfillment of that in a moment, or the explanation of that. But we've got a couple other small parables here, so would somebody read 31 to 35? He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger It is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Okay, so the kingdom is like a mustard seed. What do we know about a mustard seed? It's very small, and what happens when we plant it? It's very big. It becomes very big. So how is the kingdom like a mustard seed? Starts small and gets big. Yeah. Why did Jesus t t tell us this? What what's the what's the purpose of of explaining that? Maybe don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Uh, because you may feel like what you are doing doesn't really have much impact, doesn't really make very much difference, but God is able to take the small effort we make and grow it into something really significant by his power. Good. What else? Maybe Jesus himself looks small compared to what they were expecting. I wonder if that wasn't part of this as well, because you look at Jesus's impact, and you know it doesn't seem like he's the Messiah. You know, it doesn't seem like he's uh, the coming King of the universe. Uh, there's just a lot of things that weren't as impressive about Jesus as you might have expected them to be. But this is the pattern of God. He, he uses very small, unimpressive things to do great work. So I suspect there might have been something in that as well. Do you have some thoughts or comments on this mustard seed illustration? Does a mustard seed actually grow into like a tree? I think like a really big shrub, uh, but I don't know much about it. Anybody okay. know any more than I do? I was thinking that there's a couple different kinds of mustards. And one of them does get pretty big, okay. which is not necessarily the one we think of when we think of a mustard. Right. A mustard. I don't really know. I do have okay. a question. What's the significance, if anything, of the so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches part? Well, this shows you that it's really big. You know, I mean, they wouldn't nest in the branches of, you know, some fairly tall grass or something like that. I mean, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is a significant, uh, you know, plant here for the birds to be able to nest and scratch. I think that's, that's the point. And it, it goes back to Daniel, is that? Well, you know, that's, Daniel, that's the reference Daniel had, so. 4, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about a tree that was really large and the birds were nesting in its branches that was cut down, and that was him. 
So I think, yeah. but I think again, the idea is it just shows you the massiveness of the plant. That seems like it doesn't have anything to do with this. Well, birds were in the branches. <laughs> <laughs> Caleb. Um, I think like the birds are like compared to us on how we, um, on how heaven is our home. Yeah, but he's talking about the kingdom, I think, here on the earth and just how it grows rapidly. So I suspect this is more just the imagery of the parable and just kind of giving us that feel for how big this small effort Jesus is making is going to become. Can you say more about the kingdom of heaven? Well, the of heaven part is Matthew. He will often speak of heaven instead of God because the Jews often spoke of heaven so that they didn't have to say the name God. It really means the same thing. You know, the kingdom that comes from heaven is the kingdom of God. But you've got that a lot in Matthew since he was writing to the Jews. Well, what about the leaven? You know, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Um, you know what leaven is, it's yeast. And uh, what's the point of that? Little one. Spreads. Yes, the kingdom is, um, you know, it, it spreads. It, it uh, infects in a good way. And, uh, and certainly it shows you its growth, but you add that with a mustard seed. What do you think you're seeing maybe a little differently? What different angle do you have with the uh, leaven that maybe you didn't have so much with the mustard seed? You don't see it growing. Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, imperceptible change. It's amazing how it does that. Uh, maybe it would refer to the inner spiritual nature of the kingdom, the spiritual transformation. Uh, you know, it kind of works from the inside out. It kind of changes our chemistry, uh, so to speak. Um, and notice, until it was all leavened, isn't God trying to transform our whole life and not just a small part? Um, uh, it's a curiosity. He speaks of a woman taking and hiding it in three pecks of wheat. Do you realize that's like 60 pounds of flour? That'd be enough to feed a small village. But <laughs> So, I mean, he's really giving you this idea. Man, a little bit of leaven will really work its job on a big mass of, you know, bread. You know, you can, I mean, that, that's, it doesn't take a lot for God to be able to make it grow. Now, you know, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that use leaven in a bad sense. You know, kind of like symbolizing the corruption of sin and how contagious it is. But this uses it in a good sense. Uh, that We can do that. You know, you can take a figure and use it in more than one way. Uh, there are a few commentators that insist this has to be bad. Because leaven's always bad in the Bible. Well, it's not here. You know? um, and there were some sacrifices that even you could use leaven in. Not normally, but there were some. Uh, but think about the figure of a lion. When you, I say a lion, is that a positive or negative figure in the Bible? Do what? 
Negative. Negative. What are you thinking about? Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, Daniel and the lion's den. That's pretty negative. I was thinking about Satan walking about as a roaring lion. But then is there any time that lions are positive? Judah is a lion. Yeah, lion is Judah, and Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah in Revelation. Well, so lion can be either way. It depends on the context. So don't try to straightjacket a figure to always have to be one way or the other. And then it says that Jesus just taught it a lot in parables. That was kind of his, uh, you know, typical way of teaching. Uh, he, he just always had a parable, you know, to illustrate whatever he was teaching. So, thoughts and comments you have through verse 35. Thirty-six to forty-three, the explanation of the parable of the tares. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, uh, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now notice the parable back in 24 beginning. <coughs> the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away, and so forth and so on. They want to know, should they uproot the tares? He said, don't do it yet, wait till the harvest so we don't get any of the wheat. Now, he's explaining that. The disciples are pursuing an explanation, as they do sometimes. They needed Jesus' help in that. So Jesus gives us sort of a, a lexicon of the parable in 37 to 39, this is this, and this is this, and this is this, and this is this. And basically, you know, Jesus sowed good seed in the field, and the evil one sowed the weeds. And uh, at the end of the age, the angels will come and reap the harvest. And so, he explains then kind of what happens and that at the end God divides up between the wheat and the, the weeds and the wheat's gathered into the barn and the weeds are going to be cast into the furnace of fire uh, you know there's going to be blessings for the righteous and, and punishment for the wicked so why tell us this parable well, what's the point of telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like this What good? What does this explain? Why there are still wicked people? Absolutely. Because you wouldn't think there would be if God were in control. If God were in control. If Jesus is reigning as king, then you would not expect him to have wicked people. He wouldn't tolerate that in his kingdom. In fact, that is the reason some people give for not believing that Jesus' kingship has begun yet. 
how could Jesus be king? Look at all the wickedness in the world. Or how could God be in control? Look at all the evil in the world. Those are pretty common arguments. And so Jesus is explaining that. You know, the evil in the world doesn't mean that God is not reigning. What does it mean? He's merciful. Well, even back it up one step. How do we account for the presence of wickedness in the world? Sin. Yeah. Choice. What? Choice. Choice. But what? It. Well, yeah, but what, what does he say here? He's allowing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got this enemy who's been planting some weeds. You know, so he first of all says, that's the explanation. You know, Satan comes along and he plants the weeds. And then he doesn't uproot the weeds right away. He allows them to grow together with the good seed until the harvest. And he's got a good reason for doing that. What's his good reason for doing that? He might uproot the wheat. Yes, you wouldn't want to risk getting some of the wheat as you're trying to pull up the weeds. Better to wait for the harvest and to separate it then. Now, you think about it. What would happen if, say, the moment anyone sinned, God just wiped them out? Everyone would be wiped out. Yeah, we would have an underpopulated world, wouldn't we? It's a good thing in my case that God didn't do that, or I wouldn't be here, and where I would be wouldn't be good, you know? So the fact that God is patient and doesn't uproot the, wheat, the weeds yet is actually a blessing to us. Now I'm going to pause there. Do you have some comments or questions? Does that make sense? Why would that affect the good? I mean, in the description, it's saying we don't want to take out the bad because it might destroy the good. That's never. I don't. I, don't, I guess I don't see how that would make sense with God choosing the right and the wrong. Well, God knows what He's doing. If and God evidently thinks that if He took out the bad, He would get. It might get some of the good. I think of that in terms of if he took out the bad, it might keep some people from turning good and being saved. Or maybe he's got something else in mind that he thinks it would hurt the wheat or risk hurting the wheat to destroy the evil right now. Whatever his reasoning is on that, we could see it in the physical. You ever weeded a garden and you pulled out the weed and the plant came up too? You know, that, that happens sometimes in the physical. I've had that happen before. You know, you try to hoe it and you're a little too close. And you're, <laughs> oops. <laughs> One's supposed to get that one. <laughs> so in the physical, we can see that. I, I don't know for sure what that compares to in the spiritual. In, in the parable, it talks about the slaves asking, do you want us then to go and gather them up? The, yes. The so, I mean, is that... And he says, no, I'm going to have, I'm going to contract that and work out later. But, so is it part, part of this not wanting to uproot because of who's, who would be doing the work? Well, it's not what he says. Uh, it seems to me, let's see. Uh, I mean, because 
Because I'm trying to figure out who the slaves are for one thing, but... Well, he doesn't really say. But I wonder if they are the angels in verse 39. Certainly the reapers then are. I don't know if the slaves before were or not. Mm -hmm. But he gives the answer in verse uh, 29. Know for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. So that's the answer he gives as to why not to do that. You know the error that is really common in this passage is to take this as referring to the church and we shouldn't discipline unfaithful members in the church. And you heard that explanation? Obviously not. No. <laughs> well, you know what makes that attractive? Is that he's talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And if we take the kingdom as being the church, then this is saying what you're supposed to do in the church. Of course, we understand that the kingdom here, well, he says the field is the world, verse 38. He's talking about Jesus' kingship here over the whole world, not just his special rule over his submissive people. So here, the kingdom doesn't mean the people who submit to God. It means his rule over all men. Thoughts and comments? Well, we've got some more parables. Uh, and uh, so, um, these are, are another set of fairly brief parables. Uh, 44 to 50. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Well, this is, um, you know, sounds like an exciting adventure. Uh, the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in the field. You know, you run across this buried treasure. Everybody likes stories about that. And what does the guy do? Yeah, that was smart. <laughs> you know, whatever it costs for the field, we're assuming the treasure is worth more. So he got a deal. <laughs> and he didn't tell anybody he had the treasure there, you know. Um, so what's the lesson in that? The treasure is worth more than the work it takes to get it. So what's the lesson in that? Absolutely. The, this outweighs in value anything else, no matter what it costs, no matter how much you have to sacrifice, you're getting a bargain. You know, mortgage the farm, you know, mortgage the wife and kids, you know, but buy this field. You really need that. So it, it's really showing you the, you know, value of that. What was his attitude when he bought the field? Joyful. Joyful. See, 
Now, you know, can you imagine somebody taking out all their IRA money and all their CDs and selling everything they've got, you know, and liquidating their assets, scrounging up this huge amount of money to buy this overpriced field. You know, most people would consider that to be a really sad thing, but this guy's overjoyed. Now, why would anybody be overjoyed over having to give up so much to buy a field? Well, because there's a buried treasure in it worth way more than what you gave for the field. <laughs> you know, once you see what you're getting, the joy makes sense. When we have to expend ourselves and make sacrifices and give a lot for the Lord's kingdom, sometimes people think, that's dumb. You know, but that's so sad you have to do that. No, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's a great blessing to be able to do that because what we're getting is so much more than what we're paying. So I think that's a part of it. Do you see anything else about this man that's interesting? He doesn't try to steal it. Okay. Although, I'll just throw this in, you know, somehow this seems a little underhanded to me. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, hmm, maybe you should have told somebody that field is worth something. I don't know. But, but it doesn't matter. In Jesus' parables, you know, even unscrupulous characters sometimes show some kind of behavior we can learn from, like that unrighteous steward in, in Luke 16. Or how about the thief in the night? You know, Jesus keeps talking about. Is Jesus really trying to <laughs> encourage us to steal things at night? You know, he's just using that as an illustration. He uses a lot of illustrations, some of them based on some things that he wouldn't recommend, but they make some good illustrations. You know, you can really see his point. Uh, so don't, don't take it that he's necessarily even saying this would be the right thing. I don't know whether it would be or not, but. Well, and even like being so obsessed with like, treasure like you know you're assuming it's money or something like that like right. that's not the point either so. right he's making that comparison right. just like you would give so much for a treasure worth that much so you ought to give so much for the lord's kingdom i am impressed by this guy's decisiveness he finds it he hides it he goes he sells everything he has he buys the field you know he sees the critical moment you know and he's willing to do radical stuff you know, liquidating the assets, you know, for this. But he just goes and does it. Why not? You'd do it too if you had that opportunity. If you thought it was ethical anyway. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't anybody? You know, man. Because the treasure's worth way more than what you had to sell out to, to get it. Comments? Somebody called this joyful abandon. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's really a cool, that's a one verse story, but there's a lot you can see in that. He saw the treasure. You know, I think that's, that's my problem. I don't see, I don't, I don't fathom the treasure like I need to. Yeah, obviously, yeah. If I you, think I can equate to some sum of money or something like that. Okay, I, yeah, I, I recognize that, but heaven with God if we if we truly Chris kind of talked about this last night in his invitation a little bit if we truly understood that and valued it like we should 
there would be nothing preventing us from telling others about that. And can you imagine if you were trying to buy that field? You know, you'd been able to sell all your assets and cash in all your investments in one thing or another. And you had, you know, half a million dollars. Would you be would you be bickering trying to jew them down to 450? <laughs> you know, but that seems to be what we're trying to do with the with the kingdom. Trying to get it at a discount. You know, can we possibly pay a little less and still get the buried treasure? Well, why would you even think about it that way? It's worth so much more than what you're paying. Don't risk possibly losing it. Somebody else may come along with more money and steal that field right out from under you. You don't want to risk that, you know. It's amazing what Jesus can do with a verse. Thoughts and comments further on the buried treasure one? Well, this, this pearl one is a little like that. You know, here's a merchant seeking fine pearls. I guess he knows, you know, what he's looking for. And he found one pearl of great value. And he did basically the same thing. He sold everything to buy it. You know, the overwhelming value of that pearl, you know, meant, hey, nothing else is worth anything. I'm going to get that pearl. And uh, there's a danger sometimes that we'll take some inferior jewelry and just be satisfied. That we don't really keep seeking till we find that pearl of pearls. What a shame. You know, and, and there's a danger that we won't be willing to risk everything. You know, we won't have that, that willingness to lay it on the line because that pearl is the one we need. But that's the way the kingdom is. It is the pearl of overwhelming value. Comments and thoughts on that one? Would you say there's a distinction here that the first guy wasn't looking for it and the second one was? I'm okay with that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that certainly is the way people encounter the kingdom. Right. Some are seeking it and some just stumble across it. Okay. So I think that's fair. So the... In the second one, it's talking about how the merchant is like the kingdom. Well, Instead the kingdom is like a merchant seeking pearls and doing all this. It's like this merchant who did all this. As opposed to in the first one, it's the treasure. And I don't know if there's like a, an actual distinction between the kingdom is like a treasure that was versus the kingdom is like a merchant seeking. In one place, it's the, it's the valuable thing that it, the, it, the kingdom is like, and in the other, it's the seeker that it's like. I suspect he's not trying to make that distinction. That's, that's what I would say. And if you just look back over the last, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is compared to the man who sowed the seed. Right. 31, the kingdom of heaven is like the seed. 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And then it's the treasure, and then it's the merchant. Yeah, so I don't think he's trying to just... the whole story. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I agree. Good observation, though. It's good to look carefully at these things. There's plenty to see. Well, then the kingdom of heaven, in 47 to 50, is like this dragnet. He can compare the kingdom of heaven to lots of stuff, can't he? 
uh, that gathers this fish. I mean, this is not fishing with a line, a rod, and reel, you know. This is fishing with a big net. And when you get it up on the beach, well, guess what? You got some good fish and you got some bad fish because you're just collecting everything that comes into that net. And so what do they do? Sort. Yeah, they do a big sort. The bad fish they throw away, the good fish they keep. He says that's what it'll be like at the end of the age when there'll be a big division between the righteous and the wicked. Here's what I think this is saying. You know, some of these you wish you had Jesus-inspired explanation on. But I'm thinking the gospel is like the net that catches a whole bunch of people in it. But at the end, some of those won't turn out to have been true, true disciples, and they'll be thrown out. And some will be kept. I mean, even, even those who are taken by the net. We know the world will be destroyed. But even those who are caught by those fishers of men won't all be saved. There'll be even a division among them, a great separation. That's what I see. It's kind of like um, the uh, parable of the sower and the, the seed that's choked by the thorns. You know, it doesn't say that the, that the plant dies, but it's there. It's just not bearing fruit. I think it's probably similar to that. Absolutely. So some people can be converted, but still not be saved in the end. Is it possible to to see that it's not my job to be the judge? That's going to happen at the end. It doesn't doesn't absolve me from any involvement or responsibility, but it's not my responsibility to be the judge. Well, we're we're clearly not the ultimate judge, though the word judge is used in First Corinthians five for removing the fornicator from mm -hmm. him. There's mm -hmm. a sense in which we have a judgment to yes. make, yes. but we are not the ultimate judge. Yes. That's for sure. But that's, that's an easy role to, to assume, or to think you can assume. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably true, but we're certainly not capable of having it. Yeah, good point. And it seems that this parable is similar to the, the one, the wheats and the tares. Yes. In, the, in that you've got your, your sorting at the end and... and the difference may be the sorting in the wheat and the tares seems to have been in the world as a whole. This sorting seems to be with those who've been caught by the net. At least that's the way I'm looking at these two at the moment. Other comments or questions? Cameron. Um, in some places he's says that um, angels, like here it says that angels are collecting and separating. But some places it says Jesus will say, um, I did not know you, and he's separating them in the good and the bad. Um, what, what's the comparison? And in some places it says we'll judge the world. I assume that all are involved in the judgment day. But these are parables. These are figures. So you have a hard time putting just too much specific emphasis on each detail also. Anything else? Well, the end of this, you know, parable sermon is an enigma in itself, 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe must become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. It's like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure new 
new things and old, or things new and old. Okay, have you understood all these things? Now remember, they have asked some questions that revealed a lack of understanding, you know, through this. The most recent was 36, when they needed the parable of the tares explained. So he says, have you understood all these things? They say, yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. <laughs> That's probably not one you've heard a sermon on recently. <laughs> Now's when he needs to ask, do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he asked before. <laughs> He's got a head of himself. <laughs> <laughs> so what in the world is this saying? Okay, disciple of the kingdom of heaven, that's a good thing. Yeah. And he has treasure, and he has new things and old things in his treasure. That sounds good. Yeah. What does he mean by scribe? Well, you yeah, know, the, the scribes are the people who wrote the law and interpreted the law. There's so not forth. a law now to write. Like. Well, I mean, there were scribes in Jesus' day. Okay, so who was a scribe and becomes a disciple? I see. Who was yeah. an actual scribe? Yeah. Or a figurative scribe. Okay, well, I don't know. he knows about the Old Testament and the New. <laughs> what about the scribe <laughs> that... No, I'm not. I'm just trying to facilitate our understanding. What about the scribe who doesn't become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven? He's not a head of a household. And he does well, not have treasure new and old. Why not? He what? could only have... He only has the old. He only has the old. You know, he doesn't have the new. And it looks to me like the new is the primary resource. He, this, this one who's become a disciple is able to bring out of his treasure things new and old. Now, you know, he, there's something to be said for some of those old treasures. They may be valuable too. But the versatility of able, being able to bring those new ones to light, that's especially relevant here. Uh, and the scribe who isn't a disciple, he's only got one kind of treasure to bring out. It's the old ones. So I think this is, the old is what has already been taught prior to Jesus, and the new is the new gospel that he's bringing. That's what I really think he's saying. But I will admit, this is cryptic. Comments and thoughts on that one? In older treasures nowadays... They're like, if you have like a $10 bill back in when you were a kid, that would be a lot. Yeah. But now that treasure is not worth as much. And so would the old treasure not be worth as much as the new treasure is now? Well, I'm not sure that's the way to explain it, but yes, I think so. I think the new is has superseded the old. And the fact that he says new first is probably an indication that's where they turn first. I bet you, you could ask the average Christian, you could read this verse and ask them if it's in the Bible, and they'd say no. <laughs> I don't know, am I right? I think this is one of those obscure verses in the gospel. I don't know if I've hardly ever heard anybody talk about this. And I think I know why. <laughs> Jesus has so many of these little mini parables, and they're tough. They're kind of pearls, but they're challenging. <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't trying to refer to the pearl record. All right, uh, so are we ready to move forward? So, like, why is this here? Is this like another parable just added to the end, or like? <laughs> yeah, this is kind of his uh, wrap-up parable. 
Jesus. Now you've got, if you'll become a disciple of the kingdom, you'll have some of these new stuff, new treasures to bring out as well as the old ones. Okay. I mean, is he, could he be, you might, refer, be referring to like with, you think of the scribes as the keeper of the law. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. to me that says a Jew, so a Jew who becomes a Christian has that now understands the old treasures better and as well as having the new ones. I mean, that's true. I don't know if that's going. I'm not sure that's what he's saying, but certainly true. Just kind of like pointing out that that's that's how to get new things there. Could it possibly be he's connecting this verse with the verse before about them knowing the thing, or is it just Maybe. just a topic? I don't know. You see a connection? I don't, but I was wondering if you did. I don't, but there may be one. But <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he say therefore? Uh, yeah. So maybe there's probably some kind of connection. Yeah, I guess may, is it that if they've understood this, then they'll be able to bring out the new as well as the old. I don't know. Maybe. I'd never ask what that therefore was there for. So <laughs> I guess we're supposed to. Well, I guess he's the guy who brings out the treasure, provide for the people in his house. He liked the heir. I mean, he would have been the heir, perhaps. Maybe so. I think that's more of the imagery. You know, I mean, you, the, the head of the household who's, who's got the access to the treasure to bring out. Uh, I was thinking like a servant who was in charge of this, but maybe like, oh, but maybe like the master, the patriarch. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That makes sense. All right. Well, uh, we're done with the uh, sermon. We move on from there, 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Okay, Jesus, after this sermon, moves on and comes to his own hometown. I assume that's Nazareth. How's he being accepted? Not so much. Why not? They think they know too much about him. Yeah. His local pedigree is so well known that he can't be extraordinary. You know, I mean, he's the carpenter's son. We know his mother's name. We know his brothers, his sisters. You know, where did he get all this stuff? You know, he can't possibly be that much better than we are. There are many other arguments, but this is probably one that shows us that all these apocryphal miracles Jesus supposedly did as a child weren't true. You know, they didn't see him different as a child, you know, as a hometown resident. 
Um, he was just the carpenter's son. Uh, so where do you get this wisdom and miraculous powers? You know, it can't be, it can't be true. They're prejudiced against him. That's probably the biggest thing you can say about him. You know, he, against him, he just didn't seem very royal, uh, very kingly in his manner. You know, he had seemed like sort of a commoner. You know, that, that's a fair, fair criticism if it's a criticism. It's true. But it just means when God came into the world, he didn't come with a halo and wings, you know, to show himself off. He came as just an ordinary person. It's amazing that Jesus was like that. But that's, that's what we see in that. And they took offense at him. It's interesting in the New Testament, every time someone was offended, it was by Jesus. I think I'm right in that. Uh, which is kind of intriguing. Yeah, Philip Yancey in the book The Jesus I Never Knew, he poses the question, you know, what if what if Jesus were, you know, a short, pudgy, balding guy? You know, we, we never if we if we picture any image of Jesus, it's it's not that. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's probably he was probably more like that perhaps than than what I might envision him. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, that's the thing. He didn't come in any sense looking like what people expected. Yeah, yeah. He, he shattered their ideas of what the Messiah would be like. So he couldn't be <laughs> from their perspective. Good point. Yeah, he, he says that over and over. Yet yeah, he always has the uh, optimal height and physique and you know size and Long weight hair. proportional, yeah. uh, full head of hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't see Jesus with a big nose, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe buck teeth and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just can't picture him that way. You never imagined him like that. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, so, I mean, that almost tells you what our picture is also. You know, we know certain things about him, but we'd still see him as sort of a perfect, you know, male specimen. Right. And I mean, that's probably why, you know, in the Middle Ages he got, you know, depicted with the long hair and so forth. That was kind of their ideal for a man in the Renaissance period and so forth. So you, you picture him as your ideal man. But, but physically and in terms of his, you know, style and everything, it wasn't like that. He did not come down here to impress us in any physical sense. And probably disciples of Jesus are not necessarily going to be all that impressive. You know, the person who has this, um, you know, very commanding presence, you know, the pastor that everybody notices because he makes sure they do, is probably not much of a follower of this Jesus. Well, thoughts and comments on this? That last verse, um, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. You hear that? You hear that commented on an awful lot. Uh, but it just seems to mean to me that they didn't come to him. That's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see that in Mark six as well. And I think that's exactly right. Jesus, you just don't see Jesus come into a city and say, may the sick of this city be healed. You know, you don't see him say, take me to the hospitals. I'm going to empty them out. 
You know, he heals the people who came. If they don't believe, they didn't come. He didn't heal many. Even through holes in the roof. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. If, if you uh, if you really had faith, you were going to see to it that you got to him, no matter what it took. Good point. Were they? They asked, "Where did this man get this wisdom?" Which you could see the wisdom from what he was teaching, and then these miraculous powers. So are they? referring to miracles that he did there among him or the miracles that he had done before maybe maybe mostly miracles they'd heard about that's my guess I don't know that he did a whole lot of miracles there other comments Um, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen 